I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know. Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. Michael Patton here, along with Tim Kimberly and Sam Storms. Great to have you all joining us um, for another edition of Theology Unplugged. It's good Uh, to be here. We've been uh, away for a little bit. We took kind of an extended Christmas break, but we are back and better than ever. We've been back for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, but... Really in the swing of things now. Don't try to remind people of our extended break. I already, I already repeated gonna, of it last time. Yeah, I'm going to cast negativity over this whole broadcast. All right. <laughs> Sam, good to have you. Good to be here. We are um, talking about difficult passages of the Bible, as we talked about last time. This is uh, something that we're, we're having a lot of fun with, but we never want to give the wrong impression as if everything in the Bible is a difficult passage. Mm-hmm. But there are things that stand out as being... Uh, not only for ourselves personally, I think all three of us here would say that there there's some passages that give us trouble, but all of us being also in pastoral ministries uh, get these types of questions from people. What does this mean? Last week we talked about the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or sometimes called the unforgivable sin, and concluded that that was a persistent rebellion and rejection of Christ and the work of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that all of these uh, problem passages, so to speak, I think are really good for any believer to really wrestle through. So maybe you say, well, you know, I've, uh, I have my own way that I feel like I've thought through those things and I'm okay with it. But, you know, I think one thing that in the culture that we live in today, too, is that people just want to know that you're real. They, they're really starving for authentic faith. You know, no one is, is sitting there saying, man, I really wish I could have a relationship with a fake person or, or just a total phony Christian. And so someone who's really authentic, and I think uh, part of that, too, is, is that we are really wrestling with these issues because we believe that this is God's word that he has revealed to us and that we are seeking uh, to live it, to abide in Christ through his word, but to also be a light to other people. And I think if people come to us with with some of these passages, and if we haven't at least spent some time uh, thinking about them, praying about them, seeking the Lord about them, I think that sometimes we're, we're showing people that we're not quite as interested in scripture as they are. You know, if someone comes up, gives us all of these thoughts about the Bible, and we say, gee, we've never thought about that before. Sure, we think it's God's Word. We're infinitely passionate about our Savior, but I've never wrestled with that as much as you have, my atheist friend. Mm-hmm. I think it shows our atheist friends or people who are kind of on the fence that, that you know, we're not, we're not quite so active as mm-hmm. they are. And I think so it's good for us to pause and to really think about these issues because I think uh, it, it's out of love for God, but I think it's out of love for other people too. Well, I have to apologize once again to Sam. Sam, I, already, I know I already said I'm sorry that we were going to cover the passage about um, about uh, women keeping silent in the church. And then I brought a woman in here because I thought we'd have a special guest. And Sam said no and kicked her out. Yeah. So. <laughs> we told her that she could just sit in here and be silent the whole time. But she said she'd be more comfortable leaving. Just so you know, folks, that is a sin of which Michael and Tim can repent. Trust <laughs> right. that of lying. <laughs> Michael lied and he led me into it. 
<laughs> no, actually, I did pull it into around a little bit. Not really, because I did tell you guys the passage. We are unplugged, and we're always unplugged, but sometimes right. beforehand we, we do know the topic, and, and um, I don't think I was clear quite enough on exactly what it is that we are going through today, so this will be a little bit more unplugged for you guys. But uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 has a really odd passage um, that makes you pause in a lot of ways. The whole chapter of Genesis 6 mm-hmm. <laughs> is odd. And whenever you say Genesis 6, you think one thing about the angels and cohabiting with men, marrying, seeing that the sons of uh, men are are or the daughters of men are beautiful. But they're right after that in Genesis six six, and we may get to that soon, and we may also get to the passage about women keeping silent in the church. But it says the Lord was sorry. I mean, here we are six chapters into the creation narrative. Okay, so you're picking up the Bible for the first time, and six short chapters into it, and, and you've got a long way to go in the Bible, friends, you know, whenever you're whenever you're reading it for the first time. God God who created everything, God who has been in charge of everything, pauses and it says, And the Lord was sorry he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. What an incredible thing. Yeah. I mean, if you, I, I don't know about uh, you guys. I've never had my mother say this or my father say this, but I would say something like, I'm, I'm sorry I had you. That's hurtful. Yeah, that's probably one of the most hurtful things you could say to somebody. Yeah. Is God saying that? Is he pausing here and saying, you know what? Oops. Yeah. And then on another level is we know that he knows the future as well. So then you're saying, well, if you knew the future, then you you still made us, but then you regretted making us, but you knew the way we would turn out. And so then it just starts getting really gray and really messy, too. It's like, wow, that really hurts that you regretted making us, and you already knew it anyway, so why did you, knowing what you would have known, just not make us? The Lord saw the wickedness of man, verse 5, was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the context. Here we have man going bad. Man out of the garden. Man producing civilizations coming up. And oh my goodness, it's it's not, they're not following me. Things aren't going well. This is out of control. I'm, I regret making this creation. Now the question is, I was reading in St. Augustine this morning, and St. Augustine was talking about the the impassibility of God. Were you reading it in Latin this morning for your it devotions? It was King James English. I had to adjust. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was this idea, impassibility. God is beyond passions. Now, Augustine was one of the unique early theologians who believed in a both and with regard to this, that he is impassionate, but yet passable. Uh, he can explain, display passions uh, in his in his rea- relationship with us, but at the same time, he doesn't have any passions. He doesn't have emotions in the same way we do. He doesn't have regrets in the same way we do. Is God regretting here? What is going on? What if we say this? Can God regret? Can God change his mind? And if so, what does that do to this whole idea that God is unchangeable? He's immutable. Is he going to regret Tim one day? I regret that I died for him. Sam, I regret that I saved him. Can he 
go back on. I mean, because isn't that what we bank on more than anything else is we are changing. He is unchanging. We are, we are filled with, with issues of, of uh, remorse for things we've done. But at least there's something stable. At least there's someone stable that we can return to. Yeah. And isn't that we're, a rock we stand on? Yeah, we're basket cases, and he's not. And, and that's why he's God and we're not, is that we can stand on his rock, and it is not moving, and we can be sure in that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that does bring it up, and it brings up, well, is, is God really, you know, can God freak out? Can God change his mind? Can he can he uh, go back on on old promises? Uh, you know, am I maybe now I haven't committed the unpardonable sin, but is God going to back out on me anyway? Yeah, and I think uh, it's important to, to to look at this passage in the light of other texts because it's thanks, sin- Sam. Because yeah. we need you. We're freaking out over here. Yeah, <laughs> we we no, need no, a little no, bit no, of a- no. It just it sounds like <laughs> to people when they read something such as this that. The sin of man caught God by surprise. Mm. And God hadn't reckoned with the depth and the extent of human depravity. And like you said, he goes, oops, wow, I never foresaw that it was going to degenerate into such a horrific condition. Um, And that in that sense, he then said, I wish that if I had it to do all over again, I wouldn't. Well, of course... In, let, let's be honest, God is omnipotent. And if God actually wished that he hadn't done it and was realizing now that it was a bad idea, he could have vaporized the universe by a mere thought and started again. I mean, so, uh, no, the answer is, is no. He is not saying, I wish that I had not ever uh, called the universe into being or put Adam and Eve in the garden. Let's not forget that, for example, in uh, Revelation 13.8, it talks about people whose names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, before there was even a literal Adam or a literal you and me, before any human sin had been uh, uh, committed, God had already determined that those among those who would sin, he would choose and elect some to inherit eternal life. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We need to keep that in mind, this text such as that, when we read a passage such as Genesis 6, 6. Um, let me try to give an illustration. I don't know if it's a good analogy or not, but I think it might help. Um, now, my daughters are grown and out of the house now. You all still have children at home. Um, but you know uh, their character. You know that they are fallen. You know they are sinners. You know that uh, your children are going to... Um, do things that are going to call for and warrant discipline. And as any parent, uh, um, I remember when my daughters um, would do things and my wife would call me at, at, at work and say, hey, this is what happened. Melanie or Joanna did such and such. Um, this is really, really bad and um, you need to address this when you come home. And I could sit there for the next several hours knowing what I was going to do when I got home, knowing that my um, uh, 
daughters uh, had committed an offense that really warranted a spanking, because I happen to believe in spanking. I don't know where you all are on that. But That's a problem passage. Yeah, <laughs> another problem text. <laughs> the book's just been written by yeah. William Webb saying it's not right. But, really? Well, oh, yeah. yeah oh, well, no. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, but I can, um, I can anticipate the grief that I'm going to experience when I have to discipline my child. Uh, I can feel uh, sorrow in my heart in anticipation of what I know is going to occur when I get home. And yet, still, it be legitimate grief. Just, just because I know in advance that I'm going to experience that grief of heart over the rebellion of my child and the sin of my child doesn't delegitimize the reality of it when it actually happens. So I guess one of my point is this. It is possible, I believe, in fact, it's real, that God, when he created the human race, knew, obviously, that the fall would occur because we know that election is pre-temporal. He knew that when the sin of man, as verse 5 says, the wickedness of man became great and spread and that his, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, he knew how he would react in the historical moment when that was had become evident. He knew that he was going to feel great grief and sadness, and yet he determined to create and to sustain the universe and mankind uh, notwithstanding. Which, which is his grace. I mean, it's his grace that he decided to bring us into existence, even knowing that we would turn our back on him. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think in today too, I, I know Augustine and some other of the great thinkers of the past spent a lot of a lot of ink writing about the freedom of the will as well. And I think one of the things about about the freedom that God gives us is He gives us freedom to walk away from Him and freedom to act in ways that are are away from Him. So, for instance, like I think a, a lot of times we say, well, God, why don't you just like remove this evil before, you know, when you created a world, why didn't you create a world that didn't have this evil so that then you, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't regret making us, you know, God, if you're all powerful, if you're all good, why don't you just get rid of evil? Well, it, I think we all have a messed up view of evil if we're thinking that way because you, evil is not a thing. You, we can't just round up all the evil and just throw it in the ocean because it's not a thing. Yes, Satan is evil. There's no truth in him, but he is not the fullness of evil because what uh, Augustine and some of these other people, great thinkers, have written is that uh, evil is actions away from God by free people. People that have been given freedom of the will that are acting in ways that they are moving away from God. And so basically, as like G.K. Chesterton said and uh, other writers, is that if we were to remove all the evil from the world, we would have to remove every person from the world because all of us act against God. All of us are sinful. All of us have things in us that God gives us the freedom of the will to say, either come towards me or I give you the freedom to move away from me. I will not force you to love me. And so he can grieve that that all the men on earth are moving away from him. And he can grieve that, that they are 
acting in sinful ways. The passage does say, however, Noah found favor with God. Mm. However, Noah, in his freedom, was going against the stream and was moving towards God. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but I think, though, too, it shows that out of grace, God still gives us this world where there is freedom. And, uh, and it, even though he mourns that people are moving away from him, that there are some people that are moving towards him. Sam, I'm going to take a chance here. Uh, you can't see. Don't look. Okay. <laughs> I think I know what your answer is going to be. But did you get normally, a, did you get an early more, copy of his book? No, no. <laughs> I, I, I think this is right. I'm not sure. But if somebody were to say, Sam, passage that stands out in your mind, your favorite passage that you usually say is your favorite passage of scripture. Zephaniah. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I did it. I did it. Uh, <laughs> that verse says. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you, and he will rejoice, or he he will quiet you with his love and rejoice over you with singing, mm-hmm. with singing. Now, I, I see this as a relationship between the passage that we just talked about, mm-hmm. but we don't have problem with God reacting in a positive way. Mm-hmm. I think the whole issue is: Does God react right? Mm-hmm. And we would say, well, yes, He reacts. He he responds. Mm-hmm. He responds to people's salvation with joy and singing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the passage here. So we have no problem whenever it's in a positive way. But whenever it comes to a negative way, that's whenever we say, oh, wait a minute. You know, I, I'm fine with God rejoicing. I'm fine with the angels singing over the salvation. I'm fine with God reacting in time, even though we know he's in eternity, in time in such ways. But I think our fear is whenever he can possibly react in a negative way towards us. And again, the struggle people have is they ask the question, how can God legitimately react to the depravity and the wickedness of mankind and that be a true, authentic, sincere revulsion, let's say, a sincere disdain for that kind of wickedness? If, in fact, he knew it was going to come about and he uh, ordained this universe, created it, ordained it, and sustained it from the beginning. Um, and so they say, how can therefore his his uh, reaction in Genesis six six of a negative nature be sincere and authentic? And I don't have a problem with that. Um, and I think one of the ways in which we need to think of this, um, and, and I get this from Jonathan Edwards, I think he articulated it in, in, the, in the clearest way. He said, we need to realize that God views uh, events in this world, in our lives, both in what we would call a narrow lens, from the perspective of a narrow lens, and from a broad lens, or from a narrow, immediate focus and a broader, more comprehensive perspective. So, for example, when God looks at the wickedness of any individual in and of itself as an act of rebellion against him, he hates it. He's opposed to it. He's grieved by it. It it saddens him in a very genuine and real way that one of his creatures would think and act in that particular way. So, intrinsically... Just considering the sin in and of itself, looked at, as it were, through a narrow lens, God says, it grieves me that you're doing this. I wish that you hadn't done this. It's against my will that you do this. But 
We also think the Bible teaches us that when God sees that sin, and I'm just speaking isolated of one sin, but we could say collectively the whole human race. When God sees that sin in the broader perspective, through a wide-angled lens, in terms of how that sin can ultimately serve God's purposes in human history to glorify himself, he can will it to be. So in, 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 when, it, when it's just the act in isolation, an intrinsic work of rebellion of the human heart, God says, I don't will that you do that. But when seen within the broader perspective of his purposes in redemptive history, God can say, I do will that. And, and the, the example would be the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, does God will that a righteous, innocent man be perjured against and murdered? No, it's against his will. Um, it grieved him that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders uh, would have gathered together, as he says in Acts 4, uh, against his holy servant Jesus. It, it, it brought sorrow that he was witnessing this heinous act on the part of his creatures. But yet it also says that they were there to do whatever his hand had predestined to occur. Mm. So there's a sense in which God uh, wills um, in two ways. Um, his revealed will with regard to the wickedness of man in Genesis 6 is, don't do these things. <laughs> this is contrary to my character. This is contrary to my revelation. It grieves me to see my creatures violate what I have told them uh, they shouldn't do. But in another sense, it's very sovereign, secretive, and very mysterious. God says, I do will it because of the purpose that it will serve in the larger picture from the wide-angled lens point of view to ultimately redound to my glory as I then step into the situation and redeem uh, the elect out of that kind of uh, hell-deserving behavior. And you know, whenever we talk about uh, people... Uh, sometimes we label this the open theist camp, you know, people that are like like the late Park Clark Pinnock, um, Gregory Boyd out of, out of Florida, who, who I, I love so many of the things that he does. But a lot of these people have a real difficulty trying to figure out how can we have this stable God of decree and also this dynamic God of passions. Mm -hmm. And it's only, it's kind of like, we, we got to choose one or the other. If in Genesis, it seems to see that, say that he regretted. If we seem to see places where he does change his mind, you know, go to Nineveh. He tells Jonah, tell them that I'm getting ready to destroy them in seven days. But then he changes his mind because of their change of heart. So the, the, what he said beforehand changed based upon what the people, how the people reacted. We got in the Bible, this real interplay to where God does seem to be affected by us. Zephaniah, he does rejoice with us and over us. Yet at the same time, we, especially those of us who are Calvinists, we like to maintain, wait a minute, don't forget, we got this stable, unchanging God of decree who is accomplishing exactly what he wants. Yes, but Part of that decree is, as strange as this may sound, God decrees that he will be adversely and painfully affected by the sins of the people that he has created that he knows are going to follow the path of wickedness. Mm. He's, and I don't think that's inconsistent. I think when it says in Genesis 6-6 that God was grieved, I think when 
mankind proliferated and and um, aggravated in their wickedness. It legitimately grieved the heart of God. God doesn't like sin. That's a legitimate feeling in the heart of our Heavenly Father. But it's a feeling that God himself knew he would experience and decreed and ordained the universe anyway because of his determination to bring out of that a greater glory and a greater good through saving the elect and bringing praise to to, to the grace, uh, as Ephesians 1 says, to to the praise of his glorious grace. So... Yeah, I, I, it is It is a, a strange dynamic. It's a tension that many people think these two things cancel each other out. Yeah, Many people think that if God genuinely and authentically hates sin, then there is no sense in which he could have ordained that it would come to pass. And I'm simply saying the Bible says otherwise. The Bible tells us, even, even if I can't resolve this, I can't sit here and rationally account for how that works, but in God's infinite wisdom and sovereignty um, if I can put it in these terms he oftentimes um, decrees his own displeasure Hmm. I want to say that again God decrees his own displeasure he ordains and decrees that things will occur that genuinely cause him grief and displeasure now, I personally think that the translation of this passage, this word regret, is a misleading translation. I think it, it means more to cause sorrow. Mm. I don't think God ever, um, in any legitimate or, or real or literal sense, says, you know, I didn't anticipate that men would behave this way. I really do wish that I had it to do all over again because, as I said, if God did, he could just as easily, he could just simply have vaporized everything that was wiped clean the slate and started over and done it in a different manner. Mm. But it, but I do think we are to understand that the Lord feels legitimate grief over our sin. And conversely, as you said, in reading Zephaniah, legitimate joy and delight when we reflect the character of his son. And I, I think this is really important because so many times we do approach these types of things, and I've seen people, whenever they're teaching on this, say, oh, this is just an anthropomorphism. And anthropomorphism has to do with, you know, if it says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro about the earth, to use good old King James English, right. or the arm of the Lord or the hand of the Lord. Um, really, this would be technically an anthropopathism since right. it's a emotion. Right. But... Um, you know, every time whenever you talk about the arm of the Lord, you know, you're talking about his strength, the hand of the Lord, you're talking about his movements, the eyes of the Lord, you're talking about his knowledge. And so it always has a representation of something else. You can't just say, oh, it's an anthropomorphism, so it's meaningless. It, it points to something real. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, this regret or this sorrow, uh, right. this this grieved in his heart is real. It's real. And it's not saying... Let's just let's just write it off yeah. as an anthropopathism. Don't worry about it. It's not pretense. It's not. We're not. We're not play. God's not play acting here. It's not like He's saying, "Oh, I'm going to act as if I'm bothered by the wickedness of man." <laughs> no, God is profoundly and indescribably bothered by it. Um, but it was a bother that He willed uh-huh. to experience. One of the reasons why I jump on this, and I love this passage, and I love what we're talking about here, is because I did go through a profound struggle 
probably about 10 years ago. And it was whenever I was trying to go through and, and work through a lot of this open theism stuff. And some of the arguments that uh, Pinnock and, and the others would put forth is that your God is too static. He's not a real God whenever whenever you have him being just eternal and not really experiencing things and, and not really going through things. And that, that was like, oh, is my relationship with him real? Or mm-hmm. is it just something that I think is happening? But it wasn't until I, I, I learned to accept there is a reality in the dynamic nature of God and his, his actually going through things with me, actually rejoicing, actually um, regretting even, or, or being sorrow, sorry even. Yes. And at the same time, that stability. And I've learned to find comfort in that tension, as you put it, mm-hmm. a tension that has to remain. Yeah, and you know, I'm not. I'm certainly not one to want to uh, give credit to open theists. Yeah, but I'll give credit to them on this point. Um, I appreciate the way they have called the evangelical world to take seriously the dynamic interplay between God and man, and the reality of God's feelings, His passions. Um, I, I think again, God legitimately, sincerely was, if we can put it in these terms, and this is somewhat anthropopathic, he was brokenhearted by the depth of human wickedness, but it wasn't something that caught him by surprise. It was a wickedness that he ordained to allow uh, and to permit to come to pass. Uh, It was a sorrow on his part that he knew he would feel when in the historical time moment it occurred. And yet all of that encompassed within the wide-angle lens, as it were, of his ultimate and higher purpose to utilize this to bring glory and praise to his son. Hmm. Well, I I hope that this is helpful for those of you who have wrestled with this passage. Um, A lot of these times we're we're not going to come in and solve it in the sense of... Oh, no. You leave saying, I'm not entirely satisfied with that explanation. Well, uh, the, the good thing about that is that'll force you to dig more deeply into the scriptures and yeah. to pray and to press into the heart of God. To say, Lord, help me, help me understand this in a way that I can, um, you know, uh, rejoice in who you are and, and and see you as as great and glorious and worthy of my praise. Well, if tension was not a part of our theology and a necessary part, very often we would not have. Um and he created everything out of nothing. You know, I mean, how, how can you get more tense than that? But necessary to have the dynamic creation of all things, but the static out of nothing, not even out of himself. It's just out of nothing. And I think that this is the tension that we're going to see in so many areas of theology. But if we learn to live in comfort in that tension, um, we'll be able to hold the Bible and his word with a lot more integrity. Yep, that's true. All right, folks, next week we'll continue our discussion on the difficult passages. Thanks, guys, for joining us, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.